Welcome back to The Compass, the sermon-based podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. Now, currently, Pastor Kirk is going through a series on worship. And today, we'll be hearing part two of a message that began last time. But before we get to that, I want to say, come and worship with us. We'd love for that opportunity to connect with you and your family as we seek to worship and honor the Lord together. So if you have questions about Calvary Baptist Church, you can find answers at calvaryfedville.com or you can give us a call at 479-442-4634. We'd love to talk to you about the possibility of you coming and worshiping and serving with us here in Fayetteville. Pastor Kirk is, again, in part two of a message called The Path to Worship. It's taken from Genesis chapter 32 through 35. Let's listen together. Well, we started a message last week called The Path to Worship. We, uh, as we have already read, are reminded one more time of John chapter 4, where Jesus said the hour is coming and is now here. And I would suggest that if the hour was now here 2,000 years ago, the hour is still here for you and me today. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Our person of interest last week was a man by the name of Jacob, one of the patriarchs of the Old Testament scriptures, one of the great men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jacob's sons, the uh, children of Israel, the tribes of Israel. But early in his life, Jacob was a rebel. Jacob was a pain in the neck. Jacob had a name that means heel grabber. Now that may sound odd to you, but it goes back to his birth, if you remember. He was the younger of twins that were born, Esau and Jacob. And as Esau was being delivered, uh, a, a hand comes out of his mother and grabs his heel as though to say, not without me. I want your place. And so then Jacob was delivered. And he was given the name Jacob, which literally means heel grabber, which means supplanter or usurper Someone who is always seeking personal advantage and is willing to deceive and to cheat 
in order to accomplish it. One who wants to take the place of someone else. So you remember in Jewish tradition, it was the firstborn always that received the birthright and the blessing from the father. But Jacob was the secondborn to Isaac and Rebekah. And so we find that through deception and through uh, just seeking personal advantage, Jacob got uh, Esau to trade away his birthright. Esau was a man of the flesh who had fleshly desires and tastes, cared very little about the things of God in the moment. And it was only after he lost also the blessing which Jacob took and got by deception and by trickery with his mother's help. And we find that Esau did not receive the birthright and blessing. Jacob did. And there is a picture of that in Scripture. And we see it over and over again that oftentimes it's not the first that is the blessed, but it is the second. First is the old man, then there is the new man because of the new birth. First of all, we were Esau's. And then because of the grace of God, we were blessed like Jacob, the new birth, conversion, salvation because of Christ. We find that first comes the flesh, then comes the spirit. Well, we read about two accounts of Jacob's life because of tricking his brother and his father out of the blessing, uh, Esau threatened to kill Jacob. So Jacob had to flee for his life. And his mother told him to go north, northeastward to Haran, where her uh, brother lived, where there was still family, still relation, that there uh, he would be safe from his brother Esau. But on that journey, on the way, he paused for uh, a night's rest near a little village called Luz. And there that night in a dream with a rock for a pillow, he had a dream that there was a staircase going up into heaven and angels were going up and down that staircase. And then at the top of the staircase stood Jesus himself, stood Jehovah Lord. And God spoke to him and made some promises to him and gave him some blessings that uh, he would bring him back to this place and that he would cause him to be the father of a great nation of people. Well, just like a heel grabber would do, just like a, a supplanter would do, when he woke from that dream, he began to bargain with God. First of all, he took that rocky pillow and added some stones to it and made a pillar as a tribute to God, as an acknowledgement that something had happened in this place. And then he began to say, Lord, if you will do this, then I will do this. If you will do this, then I will do this. Lord, let me make you an offer you can't refuse. That was exactly what he was doing, bargaining with God. And he named that place Bethel. Bethel. Beth house. El God. Bethel. House of God. He had determined that somehow, in some fortunate way, 
he had stumbled onto a holy place, a doorway to the eternal, some special place, and there he wanted to remember it as the house of God. The second account we read was in chapter 35. We'll get back to it a little later today. It's at least 20 years later, and he is not heading north. He's now heading south, going back home. And he comes back to this place because, you see, God had told him back up in Haran to go back to Bethel, go back to that place where I first spoke to you. He is now wealthy with flocks and herds. He has a large family, 13 children and two wives and countless other servants and countless other herdsmen. He is now a prominent man and he is coming back to Bethel. He was not just moving in a different direction on the compass points, going south instead of north. He's going in a different direction now because he's moving towards God, not running from God. He's a changed man. He's a different man. And he calls this place by a slightly different name, slightly different as we read it, but a major difference in its meaning. He now calls it not Beth-El, the house of God, he calls it El Beth El. El Beth El. God, the house of God. Or in other words, not the house of God, but the God of the house. Now his focus is not on a place, but on a person. When he gets there, instead of building a monument or a pillar, he now builds an altar, a place of sacrifice and worship. Instead of bargaining with God by saying if and then, he is now a true worshiper of God because his life had been changed. And I left you with a question, what made the difference? What made the difference? Same place, but a totally different focus. Not just some kind of magical, mystical, spiritual place where heaven was opened, but now the place where God is, a God who is with me and a God who is at work in my life. Now he's not the bargainer, now he is the worshiper. And so I want to talk to you about the path to worship. What God does in our lives to change our perspective, to make us into the true worshipers that he has called us and purposed us to be. And shall I add this word to the title, not just the path to worship, but hear me now, the painful path to worship. Because the pathway to true worship for you and for me is like it was 
for Jacob, oh, those many years ago. It is a painful path that God gives us to journey. Now, before we get to the points of the message and start reading from the scripture, let me give you a key truth. We've been talking about this in Wednesday night as our introduction to the book of James, that God uses two primary ways to grow and mature you and me in our Christian journey. God uses two primary methods. He first of all uses the spiritual disciplines he has given us to obey. But he is also ordained to use our life experiences to also grow us and mature us. I tend to look at this in this way. It is like the rails of a railroad. There are two parallel rails that provide the means for a train to journey safely down the tracks. Both are necessary. It's not either or. It is both and. One of those rails are the spiritual disciplines God has given us to obey and to do. Spiritual disciplines like the Word of God, the reading, the studying, the meditating on, the memorizing, the Word of God. Also, hand in hand with the Word is prayer. And worship, both private and public worship, both in my own um, uh, living room, say, or in my own prayer closet, but also with the people of God in church. Fellowship in the body of Christ, to belong to a local New Testament church and to fulfill the one another commandments, to pray for one another, to fellowship with one another, to strengthen one another, to encourage one another, to love one another, and, and so on. To also follow the Lord in baptism and to take communion together as the people of God. These are things that he's given to us. They have been called the ordinary, although they're very spiritual, the ordinary means of grace. They are things that we do in obedience to God that grows us spiritually, spiritual disciplines. But also important and necessary is to properly understand and interpret the other rail of spiritual growth, which is our life experiences. The first one we do, the spiritual disciplines by obedience. The second one we have very little control over because God ordains these things to our lives he allows things to come into our lives that then our responsibility is to respond correctly. And may I say this, when certain experiences come to your life that test you, that are trials, that are difficult, that are problematic, things that you'd rather not have to go through or experience, if you are not walking with God in the spiritual disciplines, you will not be able to respond correctly when these things come. Did you hear me? If you're not growing over here in your obedience and your walk with God, 
Then when the bad things of life come your way, and they will, it's a promise from God, understand you won't know how to respond to these things. What kind of things? Well, those things that come to us under the sovereign hand and will of God. I'm talking about disappointments. I'm talking about disease. I'm talking about depression. I'm talking about death, either yours or someone dear to you. There are many unplanned and unwanted things God allows to come our way, and they don't all begin with the letter D. Those are just the ones that came to my mind because I think in alliteration. These are the experiences that often cause us to cry out, Why, God? Why? These are the things that we're never quite ready for. These are the things that skeptics often use to tear down the whole idea that there is a God in heaven by saying things like, Why would a loving God allow such painful things to happen to his people? Sometimes we wonder also, don't we? But I'll tell you why he does. Because these things are necessary for us to become the people that we were planned to be. We are sinful people. There are attitudes and ideas and actions and habits in our lives that need to be broken. And they will never be broken without God allowing pain as one of his tools to do that. But remember this. Please remember this. Folks, pain is a platform. Pain is a platform. How many times did Jesus speak to his writers and his writers wrote letters in the New Testament to churches like you and me? And tell us things like, when the world asks you why you have hope, the context there in the book of 1 Peter is going through trials and suffering for your faith. Going through those painful things of disappointments and conflict and, and all of those things that we wish would not come our way. But when we experience those things and we go through them as the people of God with our eyes on God, with our hope set on God, with our faith in God, the world is going to see that we respond to problems differently than they do. Those that have no hope, those who have no confidence. And that painful experience is going to give us a platform when they ask you about the hope that is in you. They will see it. You will be able to testify of your faith in Christ. Pain is a platform. And our painful experiences, listen to me now, are either going to make us better or they're going to make us what? Bitter. They will either cause our hearts to grow or they will cause our hearts to shrink. We will either become more large-hearted towards God 
with filled with joy and praise and worship and, and large hearts that loves and forgives the people around us. All these bitter things are going to make our hearts grow smaller and harder and wrinkled. And we will be bitter, bitter people. And there's nothing worse than bitter Christians. And I'm going to tell you what. You may be running fine on rail number one. You know, the Word of God, you may know it backwards and forwards. You may know all the great doctrines of the faith and be able to explain them and define them. You might be able to memorize and to, and to quote back half the Bible scripture. But if you are not handling these experiences in light of that truth, you will be somebody that knows the Word, but you will be an awful expression of it to the world if your heart is hard and small. It is the daily disciplines of walking with God and then interpreting your life experiences in light of that truth and letting God use that heat and that pressure to make you better. But keep in mind the same sun that melts wax will harden clay. Which one are you? Okay. So I'm going to suggest to you that Jacob experienced some painful things that changed his whole perspective of God and of others. And it made him a different kind of worshiper. It caused him to recognize that place, Bethel, as not the house of God, but as the God of the house, a God that has been with me every day for the last 20 years, a God that is with me right now, a God that will never leave me or forsake me. He finally became a real worshiper of God. Well, I don't know what all happened over those 20 years. You can read about that in uh, chapters oh, 31, 32, about his dealings with his father-in-law, how the cheater got cheated, how this uh, deceiver got deceived. He no doubt had some very frustrating experiences. As he laments on one occasion, uh, Laban has changed my wages ten times, and I've still been faithful to him. I've still been a faithful servant. Everything I've done has blessed me in this place. But finally God tells him to go back to Bethel and to take his family with him. So on his journey, I want to draw your attention to what I think were three life-changing experiences. I'll just mention them pretty quickly. You know the story. The first one we read about in chapter 32. Now, if you remember, Jacob and all of his entourage is on their way towards Canaan. And word comes to him, one of the things he had been dreading or fearful of was encountering his twin brother Esau, remember? The last time he saw Esau, Esau said, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you dead. And so now he's going back and he's wondering, is there still, you know, warrant posters up, you know, for him back in the land of Canaan and also in Edom where Esau now lives. And not only that, not only was he wondering and worrying about that, but to try to superintend the situation, he sent a lot of cattle and other things as gifts to his brother to hopefully soften his heart. 
And the servant comes back and says, okay, we gave all those gifts to your brother and he's on his way to meet you. And by the way, 400 men are coming with him. Now, how would that make you feel? Your murderous brother and 400 men in his posse are heading towards us. So it led to some experiences for this man, Jacob. In chapter 32, we find that he's trying to prepare everything for seeing his brother again. And so he divides his family. Remember, he had two wives, and and each of them had a handmaid. He had children by all four of these women. He divided them into two groups. He divided his flocks. He divided his herds, basically with this idea. If Esau catches up with one and murders them all, maybe the other will escape. I mean, he's planning for the worst. And the night before Esau arrives, we read in verse 22 of chapter 32. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. That's a creek, a stream in modern-day Jordan. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered And the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping upon his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of the Lord. A crippling experience. Who was this man? Jacob wrestled with. Some Bible versions refer to it as an angel. The ESV here just describes him as a man. But I think the answer is found in what Jacob testified to when he said, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. This was not an angel. This was not a common man. This was a Christophany, a Christophany, an appearance of Christ before the time that he came in the flesh. And we read of several of these in the Old Testament. You've heard of a theophany, a God appearance, but some of those theophanies are Christophanies. They are Jesus 
appearing before the time of his earthly pilgrimage. This was Christ wrestling with Jacob. This was the one who stood at the top of the stairway in that dream he had when he first came to the place that he called Bethel. Now, I want to say at the outset of everything else, and if you don't remember anything else, I say, I hope you'll remember this, that God is a God who is willing to be wrestled with. I don't mean that he is to be trifled with. And I don't mean that you can just have your way with him as it appeared that Jacob did here. But here was Jesus who could have spoken the word and absolutely obliterated miserable Jacob's life. Who could have snapped his fingers and ended the usurper's rebellion. But instead, he was willing to limit his power, to limit his omnipotence, and to wrestle with, and to allow this sinful human being to actually hold his own with the eternal creator of the world. I want to tell you something. That just blows my mind. But I'm going to tell you there have been times that I have been in so much pain and my family has been in so much pain that God has allowed me to tell him and to wrestle with him and express to him what I thought of him. And there was once a time that I had the audacity to say to God in a time of great pain in our family's life that I said, God, if this is your doing, I'm just not convinced that you know what you're doing. I was wrestling with him. And he let me. But guess what? Ultimately, he is always the winner. Amen? He is always the winner. And it always leaves us crippled, as it were, because it shows us our weakness. It shows us our humanity. It shows us our desperate, desperate need of him. And that's what Jacob was feeling here. I will not go unless you bless me. God, I have to have your help here. I'm in a desperate fix. My brother is on his way. 400 men are on their way. We cannot stand against that. And through this experience, this experience that left him crippled, that left him limping for the rest of his days, in this night, in this experience, he came to see God differently than he'd ever seen him before. I have seen God face to face. And yet my life is preserved. He came to see himself differently. Listen, when Jesus asked Jacob, what is your name? It's not because he needed the information. Anytime Jesus asks a question, it's not because he's looking for information. He knows. He knows. 
But here, Jacob had never come face to face with who he was and what he was. And Jesus says, what is your name? And how did he answer? My na- and I can imagine the wrestling right here just stops. And his arms drop. I'm Jacob. I'm a cheat. I'm a supplanter. I'm a usurper. I've always wanted what was not mine. And I was willing to stoop to all kinds of things, even breaking the commandment, even dishonoring my father by deceiving him to get it. Basically, he's saying, I am a sinner. I am the lowest of the low. And by coming to that realization and seeing that, he was not only crippled in his hip, he now realized he was a cripple in his soul. And Jesus says to him, well, let me give you a new name. How about Israel? A name that means prince with God. And Jacob came to view life differently. He decided it was better to be a crippled prince with God than to be a whole heel grabber. It's better to be a crippled child of God than to be a whole sinner going your own rebellious way. Well, that crippling experience made a difference in Jacob. Let me very hurriedly give you another one. This one's in chapter 33. This was a confronting experience. This is where Jacob and Esau finally come face to face. Now, Jacob's still trying to to soften the the meeting. He's still sending uh, gifts ahead, more flocks, more herds, more gifts. And finally, his brother, and he he come face to face. Listen to these words in chapter 33. Uh, I'll start with verse 1. Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Now look at verse 4. It just brings tears to my eyes. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. When Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. And Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. 
Later on, verse 11, Jacob says, please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. What a homecoming. What a reunion. Nothing like what was expected. How many of those 20 years did Esau fume and plan his intent to kill his brother the first chance he got? And when did it change? Only God knows. Only God can do that. But here, finally, face to face, this confrontation that was no doubt going to take place sooner or later, probably ending in at least one brother's death, instead turns into a joyous time with God present and forgiveness being offered and forgiveness being sought. And I want to tell you folks that some of us need some confrontations in our lives. Some people walk into church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, harboring in their hearts long ago angers that are still present, that are still open wounds, long ago encounters that were hurtful, harmful, and damaging. And we try to worship God to the best of our ability and try to put all those things way back in our mind. Some maybe have so far back shoved back in their minds you can't even remember it, but God might be bringing it to memory right now. People you've never forgiven. People that you've hurt. That you've never sought forgiveness from. Did you know that harboring anger or unforgiveness or knowing that I've not done all I can to make peace with those in my life, family, friends, others, did you know that it will hinder your walk with Christ? It will also hinder your worship of Him. Jacob and Esau had a serious breach of fellowship, a murderous Anger created a chasm between them. Jacob's walk with God and worship of God would never be right until an effort was made to find reconciliation. Neither will yours or mine. Jesus said, Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, so if you are offering your gift at the altar. That's worship. And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly while you are in the way with him. 1 John 4 says this, If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen 
cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. In 2 Corinthians 5, we'll not read the verses, but they talk about how God has reconciled us to him. You see, there was a breach of fellowship between us and God because of our sin. But Jesus took care of that. He paid that debt and he reconciled us to God. And then you know what he did after that? After he saved you? After he reconciled you? 2 Corinthians 5 said he made you a reconciler to go and entrusted to us the message of reconciliation so that we will be peacemakers in this world so that we will forgive those who have hurt us and we will seek forgiveness from those whom we have hurt and we will help others find peace with each other that this is what it means to be the people of God in the world. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. So there was a confronting experience. Before he could get back to Bethel, and it truly be El Bethel, the God of the house, he had to find peace with his brother. He had to fulfill the New Testament injunction thousands of years before the New Testament came about. There was a crippling experience, an encounter with God, there was a confronting experience, an encounter with his brother. Number three, there was a cleansing experience we read about in chapter 35. Actually, it began several chapters before when Jacob and his family leave Haran, his cheating father-in-law. After they left, or when they left, Rachel, his precious wife, the favorite wife, stole her father's household gods. Some kind of little carving of some kind, something that Laban worshipped. It was very common in paganism to have household gods. They were very precious. They were very important. She stole them. And she hid them. And later... When Father Laban discovered that they had left and headed back towards Canaan three days later, he took off after them. He realized his household gods were missing too. Somebody must have gotten them. Probably it was that cheat Jacob. So Laban catches up with them. And there's a big confrontation there. And he finally said, by the way, why did you steal my gods? And Jacob said, I did not. And he makes one of those rash vows that it's just a miracle of God that he didn't have to pay for. He said, if you find those gods, if anyone in this group, anyone in my people steal your gods, I will see that they die for it. Little did he know it was his own wife that did. And so he gave permission to Laban to search all the tents. And he went from tent to tent looking for them, looking under uh, things, looking in the baggage, looking buried underneath the tent like Achan sinned later when he stole and hid the gold. He finally comes to Rachel's tent, and she's sitting there on the saddle. 
the saddle that fits on her camel and the gods were hidden under the saddle. And she's sitting there and he's rummaging through all the bags and everywhere looking for them. And she says, please forgive me. It's the bad time of the month for me. I can't get up. And he leaves without his gods. And so here this man who is going back to Bethel for a new encounter with God and God's working and God is leading. Yet in the midst of all of it, there are idols in the bunch in the baggage, and we come to chapter 35, and we read these words. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Don't just visit it, dwell there. By the way, he had already stopped and built a house at a place called Shechem. That's a very important place. By the way, he had stopped and built a house and was dwelling for a while near or in the very town that later Jesus is going to come through and meet a Samaritan woman, a place called Sychar. The name will be changed. And so Jesus' teachings on worshiping God in spirit and truth, Jacob dwells there. He erected an altar there and he called it El Elohe Israel, God the God of Israel. His name is Israel. God, the God of me. So this God is now whom he is following and seeking. So we get to chapter 35 and God says, Arise, now go on from here to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you, which you fled from your brother, or when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. And purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the Lord who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, Bethel, the house of God, which is in the land of Canaan. And he had all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar. And he called the place El Bethel, God of the house. Because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Once more, this is the word of the Lord. A cleansing experience. Do you have idols hidden in the baggage of your life? Sure you do. We all do. Things are people that we have elevated to a place of importance and of value higher than we would have or should have elevated them. Things are people we put on a pedestal and they receive 
much too much of our attention, our affection, and our allegiance. Here's the point. I know that when I talk about idolatry, many of you just don't understand because you think in your minds, but I always have Jesus that I worship. It's not a matter of Jesus or the idols in our minds. It's God and those other things, those other people. It's like the Israelites when they come to the land of Canaan after being in Egyptian bondage and going through the 40 years of wilderness wanderings. They come to their homeland and and God told them to drive the idolatrous people out. And they did that for a while, but they didn't complete the job. And so they allowed those people to live among them with their idols. And God's people began to embrace Baal and other idols that were false gods. Now they never did completely in their hearts abandon or forsaken God. They just added the other idols to their lives. They may have even loved God, Jehovah, most of all and Baal less, but they did give Baal room in their lives to become one of their gods. And that's the way we are. I don't think for a moment that any one of you would ever abandon Jesus, would ever abandon God to worship idols. But I do believe that every stinking one of us add other things, other people to our whole, there's a word there, and I'm not finding it. But we worship them as well. We worship it as well. It may be our careers. It may be our education. Let me just ask you this. What is it that you think you have to have to be fulfilled or happy? What is it? What kind of loyalty? What is it that that you don't think that you can ever be content in your present circumstances right now, in the job you're in, where you live, in the family you're in, in your circumstances right now? What's keeping you from being content right now? Because contentment is what it means to be a godly follower of Christ according to Paul's writings. But whatever it is that you're pursuing to try to better your life, to try to improve your circumstances, to to try to do for you, for whatever reason God's not giving to you right now, you've made that a God, and it's idolatrous. This is what the psalmist said in Psalm 24. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He's describing worship. Worship. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The person that is pure, that is free of other idols and all the things that it brings to your life. He is the one who will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. But folks, 
This is everything. The painful path that Jacob had to journey, that path of being crippled at the hand of God himself, that frightening prospect of coming face to face with a murderous twin brother, this difficult, very difficult decision that we're going to remove out of our lives, out of this family's life, any false idol, anything that can distract us from the one true and living God. This painful journey was planned for him and was superintended by God himself. Some of you have gone through some very painful experiences in life. For whatever reason, God didn't just take it away. Maybe even now, you don't know of necessarily any good purpose that it had. Why would God do that? God was molding. He was kneading. He was massaging your heart and life to make it tender to the things of God. That along with the blessings of life, there are the burdens of life. Along with the gains, there are losses. Along with the pleasurable experiences, there are painful experiences. And if you will let those things have their perfect work, along with that daily discipline of walking with God in His Word and prayer and meeting with God's people and, and taking communion and following God in, in every step of life, along with those steps of obedience, you'll accept and embrace the sovereignty of God in the details of life. Those two rails will take you to a place that you will be a God-focused worshiper not a place focused, not a circumstance focused, not anything else, but it will be God and God alone. You see, the crippling experience brought Jacob to the place of surrender to God. You might liken it to a salvation, a conversion experience. The confronting experience brought him to a place of finding true forgiveness, not only giving true forgiveness, but receiving forgiveness from those he had hurt. That cleansing experience brought him to a place of total priorities. And in reality, when we talk about priorities, we need to take the S off of the end. It's not about priorities in life. It's about the priority in life. And that priority in Christ, in life, is Christ and Christ alone. Father, I pray that you would work in our way. I pray that you'd work on our journey. That everything we are looking to and depending on besides you, you'd strip away. So that all that we would have would be Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. 
If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.